Uh, we're in our second part of a series entitled Spark, Love, Sex, and God. At the core of it is we're talking about how do you experience a healthy, vibrant, lasting love relationship. Because that's one of the deep longings that we have is to experience this vibrant, healthy love relationship that lasts for a lifetime. And so this morning we're going to be talking about what I call the compatibility myth. Uh, Chip and Dan Heath in their book Made to Stick. Now a little background on them. Chip and Dan, their brothers. Chip is a professor at Stanford. Dan is a professor at Duke. They're one smart family. They wrote a book entitled Made to Stick. Uh, In it, they're talking about why some ideas uh, get traction, are really sticky. Some stories, they just, the minute you hear it, you remember it forever. And why others, though good, even though some are very true, do not. They begin the conversation talking about urban legends. And urban legends are fun. We've all heard them, or old wives' tales. They give illustrations like um, that the only human man-made structure you can see from space is the Great Wall of China. I don't know if you've heard that one before. But if you actually scratch below the surface, because on the surface it sounds like, oh, wow, yeah, this incredible Great Wall. Well, the Great Wall of China isn't any bigger than any one of our highways and certainly not near as wide as your local Walmart. And so if you could see the Great Wall of China from space, then certainly you could see every single highway on planet Earth from space. And yet this gets traction and people begin to believe it. Another of those legends or, you know, urban legends is that you only use 10% of your brain. Have you, who has heard of that before? Anybody? Yeah, yeah. So we've all heard about these things. And yet the reality is, is you use way more than 10%. Many people say your whole brain. Neuroscience clearly refutes that. Uh, Another one, you probably heard this is in Halloween. Uh, you've ever heard that, you know, don't take candy from strangers. You go there, you have to search all the candy. Why? Because they put razor blades or they spiked it. How many have heard that one before? Yeah, yeah. So these are things that we've all heard. And for many of us, like you, especially as parents, you begin to like take away your kid's candy, which is a great excuse, by the way. Um, it may be fear-based, but you can't have that. And then you go through it and eat it for yourself. I mean, you, you, you examine it. Uh, And yet, here's the truth behind it. There has never been a single incident in America where anyone has ever spiked Halloween candy, where a stranger has done it. The one time that someone actually did something, it wasn't a stranger. It was a family member in the house trying to take out another family member. Moral of the story is uh, you can take candy from a stranger, just not from a relative, right? That's the moral of the story. Now... Now, here's the interesting part about urban legends and why we begin here. Urban legends sound good and on the surface appear to be believable. And yet, if you just scratch below the surface just a little bit, it falls apart like a house of cards. I would like to suggest that relationally, we've bought into an urban legend called the compatibility myth. It's something that we widely accept as this is true and operate in our relationships and as a result are experiencing the inverse of our desire of a healthy, whole, vibrant, lasting love relationship. Because if you 
scratch below the surface, you'll discover it's not what it appears to be. The compatibility myth says this, compatibility is the key to success for a lasting love relationship. Your compatibility with another person, how compatible you are, is the very key that unlocks ultimate relational success. Now, I looked up what compatibility means. Webster says this. Compatibility is, uh, means is defined the capable or capable of existing together in harmony. Doesn't that sound great? Able to exist together without trouble or conflict, going together well. Designed to work with another device or system without modification. That compatibility, if you want to have a successful, vibrant love relationship, you must then be on the search or quest for a suitable, compatible human being. How does this play out in our relationships? There's three kind of primary or fundamental ways that it plays out. First, in our sexuality, we've heard this a lot. You have to test drive before you buy. It's this, you know, you have to make sure that you're sexually compatible, right? I mean, you would never, we've heard this, we've all heard this, you would never buy a car without test driving it first, right? Isn't the wisest thing you should do? Isn't the smartest thing you should do? How do you know if you're sexually compatible? Well, if you scratch below the surface, the overwhelming evidence reveals that test drive leads to a lower level of sexual satisfaction. Survey after survey comes back and and reports abstaining from sex before marriage yields the highest rate of fidelity in a marriage as well as the overall highest uh, of sexual satisfaction. That is contrary to what we are led to believe specifically by the Hollywood model. But come on, Ingram. Um, Married sex. Then get old. You're sleeping with the same person every day. I know, I've been doing it for 14 years. It's amazing. Um, but come on, doesn't, doesn't it just grow old? Doesn't it get boring? Don't you hear about those couples that live in this loveless marriage? And certainly there are examples of that. But on average, those married uh, have more sex than those who are single, as well as are more adventurous with their partner. They explore within the bounds of their marriage far more than those who are single. Well, okay, this whole test drive concept, it's not just about sex, Ingram, come on. It's about making sure you're compatible. And so we're going to cohabitate. We're going to live together. We're going to figure out how this works and make sure that we can live together, that we can really develop a life together. Well, okay, statistically, there's a 50% higher divorce rate for those who cohabitate or live together before marriage than those who did not. Now, Test drive before you buy. One of the reasons why this is so insidious is it puts a consumer to commodity relationship on another human being. You are the consumer, the other person is the commodity. It devalues, degrades, and degenerates their humanity. It's saying to the other person, you know what? I need to play everything out and see how this works before I really buy in. Instead of saying, you are a valued, cherished bearer of the king. Well, the second area is in the area of personality where the compatibility myth plays out. 
it says that in, the, in your personality, there is a perfect person for you. I've heard that before. Like a puzzle piece. Think about this. That you're this unique, incredible, beautiful puzzle piece. And you are on a quest your whole life to find your corresponding puzzle piece that just fits all your different curves and jagged edges. And then when you meet, it's just going to be like, boom. He's perfect. He's amazing. She's perfect. Professor Stanley Howarth of Duke University talks about why this is a faulty premise. He writes, the assumption is that there is someone just right for us to marry and that if we look closely enough, we'll find the right person. This moral assumption overlooks a crucial aspect to marriage. It fails to appreciate that the fact that we always marry the wrong person. Now, um, if you're married, please don't underline that right now. Just, <laughs> just okay. All right. We know, we never know whom we marry. We just think we do. That's a really important thought. Or even if we if first married the right person, just give it a while and he or she will change. Marriage being the enormous thing it is means that we are not the same person after we have entered it. The primary challenge uh, of marriage is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. And yet, the compatibility myth would say if you're not experiencing fulfillment, enjoyment, or excitement in your marriage presently, right now, chances are it's because you're incompatible. And finally, third area that plays itself out is in the area of chemistry. We've got sexual test drive, personality, perfect person, chemistry. If it's right, it should be easy. Remember what I just read about the definition of compatibility? Like if we're really compatible, the definition says existing together in harmony, together without trouble or conflict, going together well. I love this one. It's speaking really of, a, uh, of computer parts here designed to work with another device or system without modification. And yet we bring that into our relationships. <laughs> Don't tell me the change. <laughs> right? Accept me for who I am. Uh, Tim Keller, in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, and again, I would encourage you, if you haven't read that book, this is the book I want you to read in this series. He writes, Some people in our culture want way too much out of a marriage partner. They do not see marriage as two flawed people coming together to create a space of stability, love, and consolation. Rather, they are looking for someone who accepts them as they are, complement their abilities, and fulfill their sexual and emotional desires. This will indeed require a woman who is a novelist astronaut with a background in fashion modeling and the equivalent in a man. A marriage based not on self-denial but on self-fulfillment will require a low or no-maintenance partner who meets your needs while making almost no claim on you. Simply put, today's people are asking far too much in their marriage partner. The compatibility myth. Compatibility is the very key to success for a lasting relationship. Now let me talk to you real briefly about a few things that happen as a result. The first thing is this compatibility puts unbelievable pressure to be or to find the right person. It puts unbelievable pressure. And for those in this room who are single, I really feel sorry for you in some regards. Because right now, 
Man, you have unbelievable pressure to somehow be the right person. And so often in your dating world, you try to present a false or better self to be the right person that someone else wants to be with. And it puts unbelievable pressure of finding the right person. Is she the right person? Is he the right person? How do I know whether they're the right person or not? And that leads us to the next thing the compatibility myth does. It always leaves you with this question. Is there someone else to whom I'd be more compatible with? Is there someone else? It, you can't, if you buy into this, you can't help but wrestle with, no matter how compatible you are, is there someone else? What if I really did marry the wrong person? Uh-oh. Well, what do I do now? What, what, if, what if the right person is at my office? What if the right person is in my neighborhood? What if the right person is an old flame from high school that we're sparking up from on Facebook? I know you guys don't use Facebook. It's dead. It's only for older people. I get that. <laughs> the compatibility myth places unrealistic expectations on a relationship, that it should be struggle-free, come as you are, your every sexual need, emotional need fulfilled. And it negates taking responsibility and personal growth. See, instead of looking at a relationship as two fundamentally flawed human beings who bring their brokenness into the equation and have made a covenant commitment for life, meaning I'm in it for the rest of my life, come hell or high water. And so as a result, we have to grow through this together. And so I have to own what I bring to the table. I have to own my flaws. I have to own and say, hey, I have to grow here. Compatibility allows us to dismiss our own brokenness and say, well, we're just not compatible. Oh, we're just not compatible. No, 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 it's not me. It's you. Oh, no, it's us. And I'm going to search for someone more compatible. And you never grow. And you'll be on an incessant pursuit. And what's interesting is what on the front offers healthy, vibrant, lasting love relationship actually produces the opposite. Now, here's why I think we, we buy into this or why we want to buy into it. The compatibility myth offers or presents to a silver bullet for success in a relationship. It, it presents, here's the only thing that you need to be successful in a relationship. Here's the one thing you need to know. It's the silver bullet. You get this right, and then the rest of your life is easy. Hello. There isn't just one thing I can do that will determine relational success. Well, why? Because relationships always involve two people. So there's just not one thing that you can do. Secondly, there are things I can do that will ensure the demise of my relationship. There are things that you can do that will sabotage your relationships, even if you are compatible. However, there are things that you can do that I can do 
that will set us up for success in relationships. That's what we want to talk about this morning. In fact, I want to talk about three choices to make that will set you up for relational success. Three choices that you can make if you're single, it'll be powerful for you. If you're married, it it very might well transform your marriage. But three choices where you embrace, here's the choices I need to make, and I'm going to stop placing blame on the other person, that will set you up for relational success. If you got your Bibles, would you open them up to Ephesians chapter 5? We're journeying through uh, the first half of this chapter. Last week, we did Ephesians 5, 1 through 2, and talked about raising the love quotient in your life. And the Apostle Paul said this, Be imitators of God as dearly loved children and walk in love. Let your life be a life lived in love. Uh, how? Just as Christ has loved you and gave himself up as a fragrant offering. And it's this picture of selfless, sacrificial love. He's going to go on and talk to us about the very things that destroy the fabric of successful relationships. And he's going to tell us the very first choice we need to make that set us up for success is I choose love over lust. I choose love, what he talked about, verse 1 and 2, over lust. I would suggest, stay here, stay with me real quick. I I would suggest, hmm, much of what we call love is simply lust in disguise. Love, the self-giving, sacrificial, other-centered. Notice how he compares it. It says, but... Referring back to verse 1 and 2. But among you, there must not even be a hint, a hint of sexual immorality. That word is uh, the Greek word porneus, where we literally get our word pornography. It means any distortion from God's original design for sexuality as an expression of love and commitment in the covenant of marriage. Anything that distorts it. From your thought life to the way you live out your life, there shouldn't be a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or greed. Why? Because these things are improper for God's holy people. Now remember the context. He said, as dearly loved children... He's saying this is improper. It's, it's the space, and some of you don't know this experience, but when you see your kid living below what, who they were made to be, as parents, we all know, like, we can see in our kids who they were made to be and see, like, man, you're made as this kind, winsome, generous, serving young man, and yet you're living below how you're made to be. That's what he's saying. When you react in anger, when you react in, and you hit your brother, when you do these things, it's just improper. It's just less of who you were made to be. It's not fitting. You're better than that. Well, choosing love over lust. Well, let's compare the two. Lust pursues getting what it doesn't have. Key word here, self-focused. Love pursues giving of what it does have. Key word, self-giving. Now, this is incredibly important because this moves from a She isn't meeting my needs. He isn't meeting my needs. This is a lot of the central part of an argument in a relationship. Well, they're just not meeting my needs, so I can go have my needs met elsewhere. 
This shifts when you choose love over lust and says, and says, she or he's not meeting my needs. How can I meet your needs? How can I meet your needs? That's what love says. That's how love begins. Lust begins. How can you meet my needs? I have needs. I have wants. I have desires. And it's all about me. And love says, how can I meet your needs? Uh, I've been married for 14 years. And it has been a journey of learning how to love. What's interesting is sometimes we think when you stand up in front of the altar that you think, man, you know what love is. And I'd suggest I knew the idea of love. I knew the concept of love. And I made a commitment to love in that moment. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. But I, but I didn't really know what love is. Because love finds its strength or its source in the broken, hard places. When love is challenged to give when it isn't receiving, that's when love emerges. See, love, like just when it's easy or when you get something in return, that's not love. That may be nice. But love has this stick with it, grit that says, man, I'm here no matter what, and I'm going to give to you. I'm going to give to you even though I don't feel like I'm getting mine. See, love, love, love has no strings attached. A lot of times our love has strings attached. I remember early on that part of the way as a man I felt loved is, is physically. and felt like, man, we've, I'm not getting my needs met. And then I heard someone say that the sexiest thing a man can do is wash dishes. I hate to wash dishes. Love to cook, hate to wash dishes. And so I said, well, how am I going to get my needs met? I'm going to get my needs met by washing dishes and doing chores around the house. So I go, all right, I got this. Wash dishes. This is how I wash dishes, by the way. (laughs) She didn't notice. Didn't change anything. Second day, washing dishes. And all of a sudden, I began a self-dialogue. I began this internal conversation talking about, woe is me. I throw an internal pity party. You know what I mean? You ever do that before where you're just like, oh, man, this is the worst. Look how much I serve her and nothing in return. She doesn't even notice. Here's what I realized. I had confused lust for love. That wasn't love. See, love washes the dishes and says, cool. I expect nothing in return. It is my greatest joy just simply to wash the dishes. How can I serve? See, as long as your love comes with strings attached, it is lust in disguise. As long as you're waiting to get from it or get from them or somehow you're going to take them out, but you expect something in return, it is not love. First choice. To set you up, to set us up for success Relational success is saying, you know what? I'm going to choose. I'm going to choose love over lust. Now, here's why this is so important. Relationally, we either decide in advance or we slide in the moment. 
We either decide, here's who I'm going to be, here's what I'm going to do, or we end up sliding. And our natural default as broken human beings is to slide into lust and somehow try to say it's something different. Second choice. Second, I choose gratitude over greed. I choose gratitude over greed. Paul goes on to say, nor should there be any obscenity. You can write up there, filthy. That's literally what the word is. Foolish talk. This is literally where the Bible says stupid. Or coarse joking or vulgar. Translation ripped from our current headlines, i.e. no locker room talk. Because it's out of place. It's not fitting. It's not uplifting. But, but rather, thanksgiving. Hmm. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person. You know, in our previously said greedy, that at the root of this is greed in each of us. Such person is an idolater. No, they don't have any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. I choose gratitude over greed. Here's why. You cannot be grateful and greedy at the same time. Greed says this, greed wants more than it needs. It's discontent with what it has. The key word here is greed is entitled. Gratitude expresses appreciation for what it does have. The key word is enjoyment. See, greedy people can't enjoy what they do have because they're too caught up with what they don't have. They're focused on what I didn't get, what I don't have, and what others have that I want. It says this is a powerful, powerful practice in your relationships. I choose gratitude. I choose to step into a place of where I'm going to continually be thankful for what I already have, and I'm going to trust God to provide anything that I do not have that I need. And so in the moment, I get to enjoy Some of you aren't enjoying life. Some of you aren't enjoying your relationships. And part of it is you're so caught up in comparing with everyone around you. You're so caught up in comparing how she looks and why you don't look that way and why you don't have the right body. You're so caught up with comparing why he has those things and you don't have those things. You're so caught up with this that you're miserable. And then you start this in your relationship and you begin to compare in your relationship. And here's what he's saying. Is gratitude and greed always seep out through our lips? You, you want to know whether you're grateful or not? Listen to the way you talk. Listen to what's coming out of your mouth. Have you ever been around a couple, specifically a married couple, that are always criticizing and cutting each other down? You ever hung out with a married couple and, and the other spouse isn't in the same place and all they do is complain and complain and complain? Paul's going to say the root of that is greed. You know, early on in our marriage, because we believe words are powerful this was like when in our engagement, we made a commitment. We would never even joke about the word divorce. It wouldn't come up. 14 years, it hasn't and it won't. Because words are powerful. They shape you and shape others. 
what would it look like instead of being consumed with what you don't have and criticizing others? What, if, what would it look like if you practiced the discipline of gratitude? Or you just begin to go, thank God for. If you practice the discipline of gratitude, it will impact your singleness. You will grow in contentment and enjoyment. If you practice the, the discipline of gratitude and you're stuck in a miserable marriage, it will bring enjoyment even in the misery. Some of you are like, I have nothing to be thankful for. Thank you very much. Okay, I, I don't know this to be a fact, but I'm just guessing. It's raining today. I know that. I think every single one of us has a roof over our head. Thank God. See, see sometimes we, we just are complaining to what we don't have instead of going back. Look at all that I do have. Thank God. Thank God. Thank God. Come on. Listen. You have so much extra. And college students, you have so much extra. No, I don't. Yes, you do. You have so much extra that you have a space for your extra food. Like you save it up to use it later. There is a device in your house for perishable food that's going to go bad that keeps it cold so that you can have it later. 90% of the world does not have this. How'd you get here? Drove? Know someone has a car? Rode your bike? When you begin to kind of skid out of your little pity party and you realize all that God has already given you, the way you see life changes, your appreciation for those around you changes, and how you treat others, just it will transform. But you have to choose. You have to choose gratitude over greed. Because our human nature, if we don't decide gratitude, we will slide into greed. I haven't, didn't do that at the first service. I like that. Slide. Okay. <laughs> Third decision. I choose commitment over convenience. I choose commitment over convenience. I choose love over lust. I'm going to choose gratitude over greed. And I'm going to choose commitment over convenience. Let no one deceive you with empty words. I think some of the empty words today is that you can have intimacy devoid of commitment. I think some of the empty words today is you can have it your way and be self-centered and self-focused and there are no consequences to it. Let no one deceive you with empty words for because of such things, now this is heavy, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Now, lust, greed, are all actions of using another person for your own personal fulfillment, right? Now, let's just take this. I'm a dad, three kids, daughter's 12. If you ever use my daughter for your own personal benefit and her detriment, you can be 100% sure my wrath will come on you. And then when we read about God and his kids, that every single person in this room is an image bearer of God. And when he sees other people defaming, degrading, and using for their own personal fulfillment to the other's detriment, the father. 
father's heart is engaged. Therefore, therefore, do not be partakers with them. Don't slide. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. I'm going to choose a commitment to the type of person I'm going to be. And for some, this morning, this is, this is it for you, by the way. You've never decided the type of woman you're going to be, the type of man you're going to be, the type of values you embrace. You've never predecided. No, no, no. I'm going to be a man or woman of integrity. I long to be a person of my word. I long to honor others no matter what, even to my own harm. I long to be a person of love and give to others instead of trying to get for myself. And you make a commitment. This is the type of person I'm going to be because if you do not, if I do not, we slide into convenience every single time. See, convenience says this. It lowers the standards, accepting less than what's best, because the key word here, instant. We live in an instant or immediate gratification society. Commitment elevates integrity, holding true to what is best. The key word here is intimacy. Commitment is the fertile soil for intimacy to flourish. We talk about experiencing a healthy, vibrant, lasting love relationship. It can only happen in an environment where there's absolute commitment. Commitment is the fertile soil for intimacy and love to flourish. And we live in a society that really struggles with commitment. Because when it gets hard, we get going. See, 14 years later was so powerful of standing up front. I made a commitment that I didn't really understand. I didn't know how big it was. I didn't know what love was. But 14 years ago, we said, I do. And you know what that meant for us? That there's nothing else. There's no plan B. That we're in it no matter what. And however hard it gets, we're going to figure out how to work through it. What is the commitment for you? For marrieds, I would say, would you commit to working on your marriage? <laughs> Do you remember how much money you spent on your wedding? How much energy and focus you spent on your wedding? And somehow, that commitment moved into autopilot. And if you just simply began to spend the money you spent on your marriage, yeah, that may mean going to counseling. Hello, I do too. It's awesome. You should try it. That may mean spending some money on dates. Where you take the time and energy, say, no, no, I'm committed to working on my marriage. Where you'd be committed that, hey, your best sex life is inside your marriage, not outside your marriage. Singles, maybe the commitment. Can I, can I just, yeah, here's what I'd love. And, and I'm not trying to say this like, because there's, okay, I'm just going to say it, then I'll explain it. How's that?
Would you commit to actually being yourself? And I don't mean that by the like, way the world says, I'll be yourself. I mean, just be real. You spend so much energy and so much time putting on this front for others that you've, many of you lost sight of your own self, that you're trying to somehow be someone to get someone else to like you. And that doesn't mean that you don't go, hey, I got a lot to work on. That just means being real and being honest with who you are. And my prayer is that you would get comfortable in your own skin and you would embrace just simply the overwhelming love of Jesus. Would you commit to honor God with your sexuality? Would you just go, you know what? I long to experience a love relationship that lasts a lifetime. And so I'm going to honor, I'm going to honor God. I'm going to submit all of me to him. I'm going to surrender all of me to him. In fact, I'd encourage you to do this because I've spent years and years and years, over a decade teaching and reaching college young adults, and I've given this challenge, and I want to give it to you. Um, And every single time I've had people come back and thank me for this, and this is the reason I do it every single time. Would you commit to take a year from dating and just go, hey, and I'm going to work on being the person, a woman of integrity, a man of integrity. I'm going to commit to growing and becoming the right person and stop searching to try to find the right person. And I'm going to take a year and really commit and go, yeah, yeah, because it frees you up because then you're not always joking. Well, what does she think or what does he think? And here's what I'm going to tell you. In three months, you're going to find the exact right person. And you're going to go, crap, I hate Ryan right now. <laughs> and you're going to say to them, you know what, I made a commitment. I'd love to be friends with you, but I'm going to take the next year, or at that point, the next nine months, and I'm growing to become the right person. I remember I was at uh, the sports basement, and I had a guy come up to me with his wife and her pregnant belly, and he goes, you were right. Thank you for that. I'm so glad. And by the way, it was three months. How'd you know it was three months? I don't, I don't know that. <laughs> Would you choose love over lust, gratitude over greed, commitment over convenience? Like in the video, I think sometimes we hear things like this and feel like the reason we've strayed so far away is we feel like, man, God could never want me. I've gone so far away outside his design. And what you need to hear is you have a pursuing God who loves you and meets you right where you are. As the prodigal comes home, the father runs to the prodigal with arms open wide. And for some this morning, you need to make the most important commitment of your life. It's not the commitment to another person. My commitment that day, 14 years ago, that was the second biggest commitment of my life. The first biggest commitment of my life was when I gave my life to Jesus. See, Jesus is the one person who will never let you down who will always love you and whose grace meets you exactly where you are yet doesn't leave you there. On Wednesday, 
I'm sitting watching TV with my youngest son. And as we're sitting, hanging out, he turns to me and he says, Dad, tonight when you pray for me before bedtime, can I ask Jesus into my heart? I'm like, yeah. Okay, son, let's talk about this. (laughs) And I turned to him, I said, son, we don't need to wait. We don't need to wait until bedtime. We can do it right now. Do you want to ask Jesus into your heart right now? Yeah, Dad, I really want to. And so literally, I'm sitting on my bed, turned off the TV, and got him on my lap. And I just led him through a simple prayer. And here's what I love about the gospel is it's so simple that even a six-year-old can understand it and receive the unbelievable love of God. And yet it is so significant that it will change anyone's life in a moment. And he sat on my lap and I, he just prayed after me. I said, just pray after me, dear Jesus, dear Jesus. Today I invite you into my heart. I believe you are the Son of God, that you came for me, died on the cross, and rose again, that I might have new life. Would you come into my life and make me new? Come and live inside of my heart. And in that conversation between a six-year-old, he stepped into a relationship with Jesus for all of eternity. For some of you here, those choose. I, I choose. You know, I, I can't do that, and I get it, neither can I. And where you would stop and you would embrace your Savior, and you would invite him in, and you say, Jesus, would you come into my life? I want you in my heart. Would you make me new? And every single time he responds to that prayer. And for some this morning, today is the day of salvation where you step into a relationship with God. And I'm just going to encourage you to simply offer your prayer to God and ask him to come into your life as we worship. And for some, you started that conversation a long time ago, yet you feel really far, far away. And what you need to know is you have a loving heavenly father who still takes you into his lap. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, he says, come sit on my lap. So would you come sit on your father's lap this morning and come and bring all of you to him?